Good morning to each of you. Good morning to Faith Community Church. I invite you to take God's Word. Turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We are going to consider one single solitary verse out of this book this morning as we continue to worship together. I was reading 2 Thessalonians in my morning devotions. I think it was May or June. And I know what's in there. I knew what was in there. I knew what was coming. You know, Paul has a lot to say about the, uh, the mystery of lawlessness, right? And he has plenty to say about the day of vengeance. And there are all these themes that we normally associate with Second Thessalonians. And so expectedly, as I was reading it one morning with my coffee and just reflecting and meditating upon it, sure, those themes loomed large, but what gripped my attention and has held my attention ever since is that I realized there are nine little prayers in the book. No joke. I'm not going to point them out to you. That is your homework this afternoon. You can read 2 Thessalonians and find the nine prayers. I have found it transformative uh, in terms of shaping my prayer life. What I should be praying for. What is it I should actually be asking? And what reasons I have to praise God and thank God. I've just been extracting it straight from the pen of the Apostle Paul from this epistle. And I have found it wonderfully encouraging. I have found it edifying. I have found it challenging at times. And so what I want to do with you now is turn your attention to but one of these prayers. Right near the end, almost at the end of the letter, look with me at chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. At all times, in every way, the Lord be with you all. I am not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I am going to ask you a question. It is this. Is there anyone out there today in need of peace? I will confess to you, I rarely get through a day without praying this prayer. And crying out to God for peace. Personal problems. Fill in the blank. Failing health, perhaps. Other challenges that have arisen. Relational problems. Start making a list. There is now estrangement where there was once closeness, right? There is now mistrust where at one time there was confidence. And the relationship seems to be unraveling before your very eyes and there's nothing you can do about it. All sorts of social problems. I don't know what inflation is like here in the south of the the states, but back there in Ontario, it is way out of hand. And all sorts of other economic and social problems that occupy the headlines and undoubtedly grab our attention at times, just wrap its tentacles around us. International problems. War in Europe. Who saw that coming? I mean, it's inconceivable, unimaginable 
that here we are in our day and age and such a conflict on such a scale and all the risks that it entails is now happening before, unfolding before our very eyes. And I find that as I think on these things, that as I read the headlines, as I spend a few moments on social media and my mind begins to reflect, my soul, my heart turns within me. And daily I stand in need of great peace. Anyone out there like me? Anyone else just find the soul churning within? Well, folks, here's our prayer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. In every way, the Lord be with you all. I'm going to ask four questions. I'm going to try to answer the four questions as we expound this simple prayer, not merely expound it in an attempt to understand it, but expound it with a very simple goal to appropriate it, to know what it is exactly Paul is saying here, and to make this prayer our prayer, and to pray it with expectant hearts, that the Lord would indeed heed our cry, our call to him. So here's question number one. It's the obvious place to begin. No surprises. We need to resolve it at the outset. What is peace? Good question, right? What's he talking about? For starters, let's begin with what he is not talking about. When Paul refers to peace in this text and in so many other places, when the Bible speaks to peace, the Bible is not referring to the absence of problems. Peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is not the disappearance of challenges. Peace is not a life void of difficulties. Peace has nothing to do With pain, grief, sorrow, it is not the absence of these things. You see, we often define peace in terms of our circumstances, don't we? And we often think peace is tied to what is happening, what is transpiring, what is going on in our lives. And if you are anything like me, you think if I can just change my circumstances, I will know this peace If I could just get, and I have thought this many times, and I have expressed it to my wife, Allison, on occasion, if we could just get that 200 acres, maybe 300, put up that cabin with the well-stocked tank, largemouth bass, I'm not a complicated man, that's all it would take, a deer stand, the dog, and a good library, some of you guys are starting to cry, it's all right, it's all right. It's worldwide, brother. It is worldwide. And I think to myself, if, I, if, that, if that is the life we could live, peace. Oh, the peace that would overflood my soul. It is delusional. It is delusional. Peace, the peace of which Paul is speaking, is not tied to our circumstances. It is not running and hiding. It is not a life free of every problem, every struggle, every difficulty. Are we clear? Here's what it is. As we compile the biblical evidence, 
And we trace shalom in the Old Testament. And we come all the way into the new. And we consider the Lord Jesus himself who promised peace. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. And as Paul picks up this theme and has a lot to say concerning peace. Here's what it is. The best I can do as God has enabled me. The best I can do by way of a definition is as follows. Peace is a calm assurance that lies deep within the trusting soul, even amid the storms of life. That's it. Peace is a calm assurance that lies deep within the trusting soul, even in the midst of life's trials and difficulties and struggles. So there's our answer to the first question. What is peace? We're all clear what we're not talking about and what we are talking about, right? Okay, here is question number two. It builds on number one. Who gives this peace? It's an obvious one. Look at how Paul begins the prayer. Now may the Lord of peace, and notice it's reflexive, may the Lord of peace himself. And so this peace God himself is the origin, he is the author, he is the source of this peace. Here's another homework assignment. That phrase, the Lord of peace, God of peace, is found seven times in the New Testament. That's a great study. You pull out your concordance sometime this week. You try to find those seven references and you put together like pieces in a puzzle all that scripture has to say concerning our God who is the origin, the source, the author of peace. And you take note of this and you note it carefully and please take it to heart that when the Bible speaks of the Lord of peace, the Bible is not describing God as he stands in relation to all of his creatures, all people in all places at all times. The Bible is describing God as he stands in relation to his people. His people. He is our Lord of peace. And he is our Lord of peace because you know it. He is our sovereign. And all things are in his hand, right? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, celebrates God, who is the only and blessed sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. That God is our king. That God is our sovereign. That God from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. His ways with us are often indiscernible, aren't they? Unfathomable inscrutable, Paul tells at the end of Romans 11. His ways, simply put, are incomprehensible. It is the finite, very finite minds trying to grasp the one who is infinite. Finite, trying to figure out the infinite. Our bound intellects trying to understand the one who is boundless. Our limited, very limited understandings trying to make sense of one who is unlimited. And so this afternoon, if all goes well, six o'clock, I'll get on that flight, two-hour flight, straight back to Toronto. And when I take my seat there and I take a look around, my perspective, my view, my vantage point is very limited. I can see the back of the chair in front of me. I can see the magazine there in front of me, 
somebody sitting beside me, window here, steward, stewardess walking up and down the aisle, ceiling there as I look up. That's it. That is my perspective. It is limited. The air traffic controller. What does he see? What does she see? Every plane on the tarmac, every plane taking off, every plane landing, not just that, all those screens in front of him, every plane in flight across the United States of America and around the world. It's a feeble comparison. It breaks down at some point. Don't press it too hard, but you get the point, don't you? We are our, our understanding finite, limited, bounded. But God sees all things by one infinite act of understanding, and he knows the end from the beginning. And he has declared, my will is done. He is our sovereign. And that makes him the Lord of peace. We read in Proverbs 18, verse 30, that his way, his providential dealings with his people are perfect. Do you believe that? I struggled to believe that. I will confess it. I believe it as a propositional truth, a propositional statement, and I confess it. I have real difficulty at times living it out. That his providential dealings with his people are perfect. His ways as sovereign with his people are perfect. It implies that his way with Joseph was perfect when? When he was languishing in a prison cell forgotten. It means his way with Naomi was perfect, even as she stood weeping over the graves of her husband and two sons. It means his way with Job was perfect. Even when Job had lost everything, he's sitting there scraping the boils off his very flesh. It means his ways with David, they were perfect. Even when David was fleeing out the back gate of the city of Jerusalem, as his own flesh and blood, Absalom, advances with his army. It means his way with Jonathan was perfect. Jonathan, who should have been king. Jonathan, a man of God, who by all human rights should have been king. Overlooked, overpassed for David. What happens to Jonathan? There he is beside his psychotic father upon a lonely hill, meeting death at the edge of a Philistine sword. His way with Paul was perfect. Even with Paul as an old man in a Roman prison cell, takes pen in hand, writes down a few words to Timothy, and towards the end of the epistle begs him, bring the cloak, bring the cloak that is with you at Troas. Winter is coming. It's going to be damp and cold. His way with his people is perfect. We don't always understand his way. As a matter of fact, we rarely understand his way. We are dealing with a God whose ways are inscrutable. Oh, but we trust him. A calm assurance that lies deep within the trusting soul because he is our sovereign. He is our king. He knows what is best for us, and he holds us in the palm of his hand. And not only is he our Lord of peace because he is our sovereign, he is our Lord of peace because he is our redeemer. He has purchased us, bought us with the blood of his precious son, Jesus Christ. He has transferred us, translated us 
from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. We who are languishing under the curse of the law, we who are languishing under our own sin and its consequences, we who are languishing under the sentence of death and eternal condemnation, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to bear the curse, to redeem those, rescue those, deliver those, who are under the law. Oh, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of our sins, the hope of eternal life, that he has taken wretched, rebellious sinners, claimed us as his own, and rescued us from certain judgment. Oh, David prayed in Psalm 51, wash me and I will be as white as snow. That was it, wasn't it, folks? I'm speaking to believers. That was it. You remember A year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, do I dare say 60? Do I hear 70? (laughs) Whenever it was, brother, sister, you remember, however you articulated it, wash me and I shall be as white as snow. That was all there was to it. God in his infinite mercy, holding out to us, offering us his beloved son, Jesus Christ, and all the blessings that flow from knowing Jesus Christ in the hand of our souls, reaching out and simply receiving that gift, faith, and through faith made one with the Lord Jesus Christ and brought into a reconciled state with almighty God himself. Well, maybe some of you need to be reminded of that today, for all I know, right? Right? Maybe there's some unbelievers here. You need to hear that. And you need to hear it well. That this great God, in the words of an old Puritan, Thomas Watson, he declared this great God. Oh, he is more willing to pardon than punish. Maybe you need to hear that. He is more willing to pardon than to punish. And the gospel is a mighty river flowing downstream, isn't it? It flows in one direction. It is mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Well, this is our God. He is our Redeemer, and therefore He is the Lord of peace. Not just because He's our Sovereign, not just because He's our Redeemer. Here's another reason. He is our Father. I cited a little bit from Galatians 4 a few moments ago. What, how does the rest of it go? Start back right at the beginning. When the fullness of time had come, what did God do? He sent forth His Son, it's the incarnation, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that, it's a purpose clause, that, so that, what? We might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, he has poured forth, sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Oh, the Father loves us. And the Father has revealed, declared, manifested his love for us in the sending of his Son. And in the sending of the Spirit, the Spirit testifies to the Father's love for us. The Spirit applies to our hearts the Father's love for us. And so Thomas Goodwin, centuries ago, he likened it to that Father. He's out in the back 40 with his young son, and they're just walking along hand in hand. There he is, little three-year-old, four-year-old Jimmy, and they're just taking in creation. They're enjoying one another's company. Jimmy, he knows his dad loves him. No doubt about it. 
His dad provides for him, protects him, has to discipline him once in a while. There's no doubt dad loves me. But completely unexpectedly, dad leans over, scoops up Jimmy in his arms, gives him a bear hug, almost all the air gone from his lungs, plants a kiss on his forehead and whispers in his ear, I love you, son. Here's the question. Has little Jimmy acquired any new information? No, but he now knows the father's love in a way he did not know it or experience it before. It was real to him in that moment. Oh, yes, the father loves us. And he sent forth his son to demonstrate and manifest that love upon Calvary's cross. And he has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Or as Paul states it in Romans 5, he tells us there, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He is our God, our Father. We are his children. That makes him the Lord of peace. I'm going to ask it. Did you get all that? He is our sovereign. He is our redeemer. He is our father. We are his people. And therefore he is to us as he stands in relation to us. The Lord of peace. It brings us to the third question. These build. This isn't rocket science. Nothing complicated here. It builds naturally. Question number three. Well, when does he give peace? We'll go back to the prayer, the text. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. When? Every so often. Once in a while. When you're really feeling good about life. When everything's going well. No, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Now, let's just stick in the context. Let's just stay with, stay with 2 Thessalonians. I don't know if you've read it or studied, studied it recently. It, it doesn't really matter. I'll remind you if you've forgotten. What's going on in the church of Thessalonica? When Paul pens this and wraps it all up with this precious prayer, what's going on? In chapter 1, we discover what? They're suffering. They are in the fire of persecution. What does it look like? Details, we don't know. But we know what Paul went through when he was in the city of Thessalonica. We know what kind of opposition he encountered. We know what kind of physical suffering he experienced. I think it's a fair conclusion for us to look at this and understand that the Thessalonians, the believers, are now going through something similar. This is a persecuted church. These are persecuted people. These are people who are in the flames of suffering. You go into chapter 2, what do we discover? They're alarmed. They're agitated. Why? Because some in their midst, I don't know, a visiting preacher, something like that, someone is saying the day of the Lord has already come. The day of the Lord has already happened. And he's sowing seeds of confusion. What, we miss the day of the Lord? What's going on? And there are all of these conspiracy theories all of a sudden swirling. And they've been spending too much time on social media. 
and too much of Tucker Carlson. And it's just all of this, all of this tidal wave of information and negativity. And they're unbelievably alarmed and just restless. And then we come to chapter 3 and what do we discover? The church itself is in turmoil. Not just because of persecution. Not just because they've been alarmed by this false teaching. But they are troubled because of dissension in their own midst. There are some Paul accuses of laziness, idleness. They've missed what it means to be called of the Lord. They've misunderstood the implications of the gospel for life. And they are misrepresenting, therefore, by their very lives, the nature of the gospel and what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're bringing disrepute upon the witness, the testimony of the church. And these are relationships that undoubtedly ran deep at one time. And now they're faced with this dilemma of having to deal with this internal turmoil. And so you have a persecuted church. You have an alarmed, unbelievably agitated church. And now you have this church in which there is some sort of dissension and some sort of division arising. Now look at this prayer. Does it not come alive to you now? And just how significant this is and what it would have meant to the original audience. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace in all of this. Whatever it is, at all times, in every way. I trust that speaks to you, brother. I trust it speaks to you, sister. I don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know what's going on in my life. But I guarantee you it's something. There is something we wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and we're such an anxious mess we can't get back to sleep. There is something that's affecting us relationally and impacting us and something that, you know, it's just, it's just the mind. It's just, I just can't stop thinking about it. And it's like these, these thoughts in my mind that cut this channel so deep and all of my other thoughts just kind of disappear into it. And this will become overwhelming, all-consuming in the midst of it all. Oh, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace in every circumstance at all times, every way. That is, may he give you a calm assurance that lies deep within the trusting soul, even in the storms of life, a calm assurance which arises from our knowledge that he is our Lord of peace and he is our Lord of peace because he is our sovereign. He is our Redeemer, and He is our Father. It brings us to question number four, fourth and final question. Here we go. How does He give peace? How does this happen? I think the answer resides in the final statement in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. I think the next statement answers the how. The Lord be with you all. It might be initially confusing. What do you mean, the Lord be with me, all, all of us? The Lord be with me. What do you mean, the Lord be with me? That seems to imply what? What's the obvious implication? He isn't with me. If you're praying for him to be with me, 
I can only conclude what? He isn't with me. That's not what I've been learning ever since Sunday school right up to the present. No, I, I, I've, I have been told that God is always with me. I have been told that in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I know I have been brought into union with Christ. And I know I've been brought into the body of Christ, the church. I know I am a member in the family of God. And I know God promises I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friend, it's all true. True, true, and true again. It's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. You see, there is another kind of nearness. There is another kind of closeness. James alludes to it in the fourth chapter of his epistle when he exhorts us, draw near to God. And what will God do? Draw near to you. We are not talking about our positional identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the family of God. That does not change. We are near to God. God is near to us. Unchangeable. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. But our experience of God's nearness, it fluctuates, doesn't it? Our knowledge of God's closeness, there seem to be ebbs and flows. There are times when he is near. There are times where he seems to be distant. And when you put it all together, then in this prayer, what is it Paul seems to be inferring? Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. He is praying for what? Our awareness, our knowledge, our experience that God is near. What is this? Simply put, God is near in our experience. This isn't complicated. God is near in our experience when truths become lively to us. When the truth of his sovereignty becomes lively to us, the truth of his redeeming grace comes alive in the heart. The truth of his fatherhood over my life takes on vitality. These truths are no longer merely propositional statements that we confess with the tongue. These truths reside deep within the inner recesses of the soul. And they grip the heart. And they stir us. And they become our joy. They become our delight. That is to say, these truths are no longer merely mental abstractions. We are no longer talking merely about some sort of speculative knowledge. Well, I can wax eloquent on God's sovereignty. That's fine. But has it gripped the heart? I know what it means to be saved. And I can can explain the doctrine of justification and cross all my T's and dot all my I's. Fine. What difference does it make in the life? Well, God is my father. I've heard that since I was three years old. I get it. I believe it. I affirm it. But has it taken hold of the affections of the heart? When truths become lively in the heart. Oh, the Lord draws near. And when those truths become lively, what is the result? It is peace. A calm assurance that lies deep within the trusting soul. Even amid the storms of life. 
You read Second Thessalonians sometime this week in your devotions. You just ask yourself a simple question. What do I learn about God in this epistle? You go, for example, let me just give you an example. It's right there in the third chapter, back in verse 3. How does it open? What does Paul say? It's a beautiful statement. The Lord is faithful. How many times have we said that? How many times have we heard that? How many times have we written that on a card? Beautiful statement. The Lord is faithful. It's rooted in who God is. James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. From whom? From the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It sounds like gibberish. What's he talking about? In whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's referring to the moon, the sun, and the earth, and the shadows we experience on earth. Night, for example, is the result of what? That the moon and the sun and the earth are in constant change, constant state of flux. What's James' point? God isn't like that. He is the father of lights who created it all. And in him there is no variation nor shadow due to change. There are no processes active within his nature or outside of his nature that cause him to change. Therefore, he is faithful. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As the children of Israel exit the land of Egypt... And as they have traversed the Red Sea, and just before they get to the foot, the base of Mount Sinai, do you remember who comes out to attack them, engage them in battle, the Amalekites? And Moses climbs up on a hill, and with him go Aaron and Ur, and there on the hill, as long as Moses' hands are in the air, the Israelites prevail over the Amalekites. But the moment his arms are down, The Amalekites prevail over the Israelites. Moses is tired. Aaron and Ur come to either side of him, and they hold up his arms. And we read that they were steady. His arms were steady until the going down of the sun. The original language, the word translated steady, is the same word from which we get faithful. To be faithful is to be steady. It is to be dependable. It is to be reliable. It is to hear the word of God. Paul declared that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The promise of a steady God, a faithful God, an unchanging God, we go over to 1 Peter 1 and we discover that it is by this God's power that we are being guarded, preserved, kept through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Oh, when his faithfulness comes alive and his faithfulness, the truth and reality of his faithfulness takes hold in the inner recesses of our souls. Oh, that truth becomes lively. And when that truth becomes lively, what is the result? It is peace. The Lord of peace imparting peace to us. A calm assurance that lies deep within the trusting soul. Even amid the storms, the difficulties, the trials, the struggles, the disappointments of life. There was a man by the name of Alan Gardner. He was a veteran of the War of 1812. 
My apologies on the wrong side of that war, at least if you live this, south of, this side of the border. He fought for the British, and after the War of 1812, he became a missionary. And he ended up in South America, southernmost tip of South America. And his ambition, his goal was to make it to some islands off the coast, reach the unreached with the gospel. So he and a band of co-workers set off one day, storm, they were shipwrecked on an uninhabited island. Nobody knew where they'd gone. Nobody could find them. They had no way to get off the island, no way to sustain themselves. And they were all dead, having starved to death, slow, lingering, agonizing death over a period of a couple months. Finally, half a year later, search party discovered the remains And beside Alan Gardner's body was his journal, the last entry in the journal, I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. That's what I aspire to. I'm not there yet. I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. That is a peace. That is the peace Paul tells us in Philippians, the peace which passes what? All understanding. And a peace that is rooted in the Lord of peace. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the moments we have spent here in your presence, in worship. The songs we have sung, the supper that we have participated in, and now the word that we have heard. And our heartfelt prayer is that it all might direct us to your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. May he be magnified in our hearts, and may your people be encouraged. May any unbelievers here be challenged. And we do intercede on their behalf, asking that it might be indeed the day of salvation. For what we have heard, we ask that it might be for our good. May it also issue forth in your eternal glory. And we seek this from you in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.